Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring you the guest speaker talks from the 2018 East End Conference, held at the Astronomer Pub on Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London, on the 3rd and 4th of November 2018. Emmeline Godfrey is a regular contributor to the Times Literary Supplement, History Today and BBC History Magazines, and is the author of the books Masculinity, Crime and Self-Defence in Victorian Literature, Duelling with Danger. Femininity, Crime and Self-Defence in Victorian Literature and Society, From Dagger Fans to Suffragettes, and the forthcoming Kitty and the Cats, Mrs. Pankhurst's suffragette bodyguard and the police officers on her trail. Her talk is entitled Against the Shadows, Victorian Crime Waves and the Craze of Self-Defence. First of all, next year is something of a landmark year. Uh, in uh, Certainly in legal history, 21st of December 1919 was when they passed the Sex Discrimination Removal Act. And that made it available for women to actually then take up positions as solicitors and barristers. Uh, so that's 21st of December. Within 24 hours of that happening, two women had applied to join the Inns of Court as barristers. And it opened the field. Uh, and then uh, because of the, uh, the pupa, well, the system of uh, uh, eating dinners, keeping terms, uh, to get your barrister, it was actually a few years before they could be called to the bar. But the first woman called to the bar was called on, in May 1922. It was an academic by the name of Ivy Williams. And Ivy Williams was welcomed to the bar by the treasurer of the Inner Temple, who just happened to be that year none other than Sir Henry Fielding Dickens, who was the son of Charles Dickens. Uh, and when he, uh, because women had actually fought almost a 20-year battle to be able to uh, actually have legal uh, up here in legal courts, these solicitors and barristers, and when he finished his speech, yeah, welcoming Ivy Williams to the bar, he finished his speech by saying, and when it comes to women in the law, might I quote my esteemed father, the law, sir, is a ass. And with that, he sat down. Uh, so, so in many ways, I'm really looking forward to our, to our, to our, next, uh, our next talk, uh, because our, our next speaker is, in fact, um, she, well, she's a regular contributor to the Times Literary Supplement, uh, also uh, the chairman of the, uh, the Wells Society, the H.T. Wells Society. And next April, her new book is coming out. Uh, which is Kitty and the Cats, Mrs. Panker's suffragette bodyguard and the police officers on her trail. Uh, so that's coming out next year, but we're going to have a great talk now. So can we please uh, give a big welcome to Emmeline Godfrey, Against the Shadows. I must admit, I was really excited to be invited to give uh, this talk at East End Conference. I've got a bit of a background with the East End myself. Um, my first Jack the Ripper tour I went on in 1995. I went on with my grandmother. Uh, and she wasn't really used to anything to do with Jack the Ripper at all. And it would sort of stand in Mitre Square. There's this kind of hush and this silence. And suddenly all the details about Catherine Eddowes would come out. And she's like, oh dear goodness me. So um, that was kind of my nice first memory of Jack the Ripper. And, and then afterwards I lived in the East End for about 17 years. Our son was born uh, in Whitechapel, and actually says in his passport, Whitechapel, not just London. So I kind of like that as well. So I was really excited to kind of find some sort of links with my own work um, and the East End and trying to find some kind of connections. And I was delighted to actually last minute find some which I'm going to put into this talk. 
So we're going to move roughly, kind of chronologically through from the 1850s to 1914, looking at some crime panics, men, women, and physical danger uh, on the street. So um, with all this personal history, I thought, I'll leave it on there for a second, to start off with an execution, um, a garrotting, uh, which occurred in 1851. And this was the execution of General Narciso Lopez uh, in Cuba. Uh, and he had invaded the island in the summer of that year with the intention of severing Cuba uh, from Spanish rule. Uh, his troops were surrounded, he was arrested, and he was put to death with this type of machine. This was actually the best picture I could find on the internet of it. Um, and it was called the Garota. Uh, so what happened was, you know, his face would be covered, an iron collar would be put around his neck, and then uh, the collar would be gradually uh, made tighter and tighter, and his windpipe was severed. And this would be kind of done in front of a bit of a crowd. Uh, the American Harper's New Monthly Magazine in 1854 described the device, the garota, as the hateful collar. Although the verb to garot existed in the English language uh, before the 1850s, the term really took on. And so by the early 1850s, with the virtual end of transportation to Australia, it took on a new anxious connotation. Uh, and before I talk a bit more about garrotting and the 1850s and transportation, I want to go to the Far East first to look at Fagi, which was meant to be related to garrotting as a type of street crime. Uh, and uh, Fagi was a religiously motivated form of robbery. There were lots of people in the 1850s really, really interested in Fagi. Uh, and in fact, in 1857, Household Words, edited by Dickens, offered readers a description of Fagi. So there is the unsuspecting traveller of this unfortunate guy here, as you can see, with his bundle, the decoy thug who engaged him in conversation. The two men who at the given signal were to seize, the executioner standing behind with the handkerchief ready to strangle the victim. So everybody was talking about this in the 1850s. It was perpetrated on travellers by groups of thugs who used this yellow or white scarf twisted to form a noose, which was called the rumal, uh, into which was wrapped a coin, or coins dedicated to the goddess Kali, uh, the goddess of destruction. Thugs were sometimes referred to as fanzigars or noose operators, and the victim's body was then quickly um, buried or cut into pieces, gutted, and then thrown down a well. So people were very thrilled and horrified to read about this in, in Britain. Uh, and in 1847, the British Museum acquired a set of wooden thug figures, which you can see in this picture here, made by an artist in Madras. They're about six inches tall and they're kept at the British Museum uh, in their stores in East London. Um, although some of the photographs of them are on the museum's website, it's actually really good to see them up close to really get an idea of why these, these figures might have scared newspapers reporters at the time. In fact, the author Nathaniel Hawthorne commented on a visit to London, it deserves to be noticed that some small figures of Indian thugs represented as engaged in their profession and handiwork of cajoling and strangling travellers have been removed from the place from which they formerly occupied at the part of the museum shown to the general public. They are now in a more private room, and the reason for their withdrawal is that, according to the chaplain of Newgate, the practice of garrotting was suggested to the English thieves by this representation of Indian thugs. And this is what the chaplain of Newgate wrote in 1857. I've often thought and still think that the origin of garrot robberies took place from the exhibition of the way in which thugs in India strangled and plunder passengers as exhibited in the British Museum. I could hardly recommend that these models were placed in a more obscure position which they were and ceased to be the means of giving men addicted to crime and violence an idea of how their evil purposes may be accomplished. 
So these miniature figures really do vividly tell the story of a classic Baroque, a, a classic thug attack. Uh, in this arrangement, you can see them accompanying a traveller, and that is on your left there. Uh, and then you can see them afterwards um, strangling him with the rumal, as you can see on the right. So who is actually, before I forget, and they're sharing their plunder in the very last picture there. So who is actually at risk of being corrupted by seeing these figures at the British Library public space? Well, this chap here, who hides in the shadows, you can see him right there. A coil that appeared alongside this cartoon in Punch of December 1862 entitled The Song of the Garotta links with Fagie very explicitly. And it goes, H, meet me by the moonlight tonight and then I will give you the hug. With my arm round your neck tightly thrown, I'm as up to the work as a thug. Oh, sorry, it's <laughs> I was lost in my thuggy there. <laughs> yeah, anyway, there you go. <laughs> so this massive lurking figure represented the stereotype of the so-called ticket of leave man. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1850s, transportation to Australia massively was massively reduced. So, um, as critics put it at the time, you know, now British um, law enforcement officials had to now reform the convicts on British soil and deal with them at home. Uh, and this created this massive panic because they felt that these ticket of leave men were learning how to, you know, operate the rumel in a sense to, to strangle people. They were learning how to do that on board convict ships that they had learned, you know, from other people who had been on board those convict ships. So it was kind of a sense of these people were now at large in Britain on the streets. Uh, and the chaplain of Pentonville Prison described the Garot attack for the benefit of readers of the Times in 1857, the kind of type of crime that they were perfecting, you know, from, that they learned from other convicts. The robbers work in a gang which consists generally of three persons. The tallest and most muscular comes from behind the intended victim and rapidly throwing his arm around the neck presses the throat almost to strangulation. The others rifle the pockets and otherwise assist. So, like Fagi, there was this kind of choreography of attack, although, unlike Fagi, murder was not the intent of the rotting. It was just to kind of temporarily stun your victim. And if you killed them, then you kind of failed. Or if they later on died, you kind of failed as well. Um, but that really didn't help matters because um, people were still reporting these horrible injuries in the press. Uh, and in 1867, Thomas Oldburn, chief oil cooper at St Catherine's Docks, was part passing the railway arches at Lucas Street, Mile End, when he was grabbed from behind by the throat, but he soon died of his injuries. So the Times felt that garrotting was considered to be more allied to the thug system than anything else, to really underline that point. And it was a kind of sense that this evil force, this wave of crime, was landing in London's docks, going upriver to the metropolis. So some attacks, robberies with strangulations, are described as garrotting, but I'd argue that there are a good deal of classic garrotting attacks, you know, not just if they're normal, you know, mugging where somebody just runs off with somebody's money and that's it, you know, the actual typical kind of garrot attack. Uh, there were quite a number of these ones in the press. Um, there were at least two, possibly three garrotting panics. Uh, the first in the mid-1850s, and that was kind of flared up as a result of the um, anxieties due to transportation um, end. And also the second flared up as a result of the garrotting of a member of parliament, the Blackburn, Hugh Pilkington. Uh, who was garroted in the classic manner, as I call it, um, in July 1862. And he was attacked and lost consciousness whilst crossing Pall Mall. Uh, when he came to, he saw that his watch and purse were missing and his undergarments were saturated in blood, he said. 
The novelist Anthony Trollope was inspired by the event to have, so much so, to have the unappealing Mr Kennedy MP in his political novel Phineas Finn garroted whilst he walked home. And Phineas Finn, the eponymous hero, saves the day, but Mr Kennedy is still kind of traumatised by the event. There was little public sympathy towards Ticket of Leave Men, and the Ticket of Leave Man's cause um, wasn't helped by a newspaper reportage. Um, in 1862, 27 perpetrators of robbery with violence were indicted at the Central Criminal Court. Uh, and those passed the crackdown on ticket leave activities, you know, just to see that they really were adhering to their licence, doing as they were told, they had to report. Uh, if there's any suspicious behaviour, they were then told to report to a magistrate. And it also, at that time, you saw the kind of kick-starting of the file, of the compiling of files of any convicted offender as well by Scotland Yard. So another result of the garroting panics was the creation of the cultural self-defence. And thanks to the abolition of various newspaper duties, during the years of the garroting scares, the circulation of daily papers went threefold. So more people were consuming papers and commenting on what was happening, telling others what they thought, you know, the government's just not doing enough, the police aren't doing enough, but hey, I've invented a new type of weapon, and lots of people would be reading about that. So for instance, this was one of them. Uh, and this uh, lovely item here, um, that's actually kept at the Police Heritage Centre uh, in Brompton. Uh, and back in the day, I was actually able to try it on when it was kept um, in Woolwich. Um, and uh, you can kind of see why this particular character here on your right is walking quite so kind of, you know, walking quite so upwards because you really do not want to get that caught on you at all. Um, and then, oh, yeah, so. And it also was interesting, uh, in the course of research for this paper, I found out that a Bow Road engineer, Andrew Petty Howe, thought that these collars looked really ugly. So he decided to actually put the spikes underneath the collar, and he uh, submitted a patent application for this, what he called his improved anti-garrot cravat, which consisted of a linen, uh, linen or leather stock with concealed spikes. And now... This is Henry Ball's solution to the problem. It says, uh, patented 1858 anti-garrotter or belt buckle pistol. Uh, and uh, the pistol was concealed in military-style belt buckle, uh, but when used as an anti-garrotter, the um, pistol was worn at the back. So anybody trying to strangle you at the back, you pull a cord and you'd shoot them. <laughs> and this is the real thing, kept at the armories. <laughs> In, well, some of them actually had a case as well attached, so which is really exciting for kind of gun collectors. Um, Anthony Trollope called these so-called life preservers, which are also types of weapons used. Um, he, he, he kind of basically said that these were not very good weapons to use, and I'll talk about that in a second. But these life preservers, these are also at the Metropolitan Police Heritage Centre, as well as the Crime Museum in Scotland Yard. There's quite a number of reasons at the Crime Museum. Um, and they're kind of like sort of small cudgels with one weighted end. And Anthony Trollope's novel Phineas Finn, which was a sequel to Phineas, Phineas Redux, which was a sequel to Phineas Finn, actually had the life preserver implicated in a murder, which really cast a negative light on the use of these popular weapons of self-defence. He saw all, all of the time on the streets. In fact, he said they were, kind of, they were selling out like oranges. I mean, there were just so many of them everywhere. Um, and I was actually delighted to find um, some garrotting plays featuring life preservers and other weapons. One of my favourites is Crawford Wilson's farce, which is kept at the British Library, called My Knuckle Duster, uh, alternatively called The Anti-Garot. They've got these wonderful sensational titles. And it was, according to the Athenaeum, received with much praise, 
from its audience at the Royal Strand Theatre. The farce illustrates how weapons like antique rock collars, revolvers, quote, and knuckle dusters without skill and courage are mischievous only to their owners. The play revolves around the blunders that befall the Manchester traveller Augustus Smith, staying at Highgate, London. The quiet neighbourhood unnerves him and he's in constant fear of burglars. Um, and the Athenaeum tells us that our hero sits down on the collar and suffers from its sharp points, pricks his fingers on the knuckle duster and is alarmed at the possible explosion of a revolver. Every single conceivable weapon was clearly featured in this play. Um, and so it kind of, sort of shows these items were more dangerous to the men wearing them than the criminals themselves. Also at work here was this kind of cultural shift away from interpersonal violence. So uh, in the 18th century, the Bloody Code, which had been enacted um, for around 200 crimes, made, made them punishable by death, was starting to um, be undone. So more in the way of crimes against persons or crimes against people were more harshly punished. And crimes against property were not quite as harshly punished. So this is kind of cultural shift going on at the time as well. And part of the, as part of this trend, you kind of see like a sort of phasing out of, you know, the practice of duelling in Britain anyway. Um, so you're probably familiar with uh, this image here. I had to get this off the internet quickly a couple of days ago, so it's a little bit blurry. So people did still obviously keep using weapons for self-defense. Um, and this is kind of a, an example because of um, these ladies here defending themselves against Jack the Ripper. And there's one newspaper interviewed them commenting, some of the women whose calling keeps them on the streets in the small hours of the East End of London are arming themselves with weapons of defence, and several of them express themselves as perfectly willing to meet the murderer, accompany him to a lonely spot, and there single-handed fight a life and death struggle with him. So, as you may know, uh, another method of self-defence against the Ripper, for instance, was the forming of small patrols, particularly that of St Jude's Vigilance Association. That's the closest I've actually got to having a photograph of them. This appeared in the Illustrated London News. The Oxford students at Toynbee Hall, they lent a hand to uh, the controls. Um, as, the, as the Toynbee Hall website says, the, the, the hall has been the hub of social action since 1884, and the founding father was um, Canon Samuel Barnett. Toynbee Hall was described as a club for gentlemen, a university house with libraries and sitting rooms, not situated in university town or the West End, but as the press emphasised, in very you know, uh, praiseworthy views in the East End. And the only way to get to know people Barnett felt was to come and live among them, to get involved in local communities and local interests. And Toynbee's Hall's aim was to bring the East and the West together, quote, to help the West to understand how the East lives and what manner of people are its inhabitants, to convince the East Enders that there are swells of both sexes who, hardly, who heartily sympathise with them and who longed to do so more intelligently. That's, that's the words of the graphic newspaper. Toynbee Hall was also close, in fact, just a couple of blocks away, to where Emma Smith, one of the earliest non-canonical Ripperwood victims, was attacked, and even closer to where Martha Tabron's body was found in George Yard buildings, just round the back of Toynbee Hall uh, in early August. Within days of this happening, the committee was founded. The Toynbee Hallers would assist the police they'd walk in twos uh, from midnight until dawn, uh, but the St. Jude's Vigilance Association had its work cut out, there just weren't enough police officers to go around. And um, so, for instance, uh, in the wake of Polly Nichols's murder at the end of August, there were numerous fights which the police, local police force were just too small to cope with. And when the committee, meeting met committee members tried to stop fights, there were often no police officers nearby to help them. 
So the question was, how do you deal with, you know, people that you find in the street? How do you eject people that you don't want in the in certain areas? You know, how do you defend yourself? This kind of constantly comes up all the time. We'll be looking at that more in a second. So this often reprinted image from the Illustrated London News features drawings by an artist who accompanied one of the vigilance groups. Um, as the paper said, the repeated horrible murders and mutilations of the dead perpetrated in the dark nooks and corners of the wretched quarter in the vicinity of Whitechapel and Spitalfields the failure of the police either to detect the criminal or to guard against the commission of these atrocities have excited much alarm. Charles Dickens, going slightly back in time here, often accompanied police officers in their duty and he really fantasised about personally confronting and physically punishing the rotters in his kind of self-styled one-man patrol to deal with them physically as he put it. And for anyone who fancied doing the same, the Times gave advice for active men with good nerve. And this was the advice the Times said, seize the arm placed around your neck with both hands, pull it forward, then quickly bend your face down towards your toes. You will be astonished at with what ease you throw your adversity over your head. So quite athletic. So grotting a street crime which overwhelmingly affected men, I mean, there are accounts here of women being uh, the victims of garrotting, but generally it's mainly men who, who, who are um, is the subject of newspaper reports. And now I'm going to look at some of the crime waves that affected women during the 1850s, so we're kind of moving gradually forward in time to 1914. Firstly, rail travel provided a source of anxiety, especially when hot robberies and assaults took place, not least in 1864 when Thomas Briggs, who was discovered half-dead between Hackney Wicks and both stations. Uh, there were concerns over the physical and indeed the moral safety of women travelling alone with tunnels and closed spaces as places of anxiety as well as opportunity. Um, some accounts, for instance, describe narrow escapes from traffickers at railway stations and carriages. And very sensationally, in 1875, Rebecca Kate Dickinson was travelling alone to London when army officer and friend of Prince of Wales, Colonel Valentine Baker, engaged her in conversation and tried to put his hand underneath her dress on her stocking above her boot. These are quotes. Despite Baker being a strong man, she outwitted him by um, pushing down the window, screaming and then escaping onto the footboard and then raising alarm, just staying there until the train reached the next station. So um, witnesses also confirmed that they'd actually seen him in a state of undress. Her brother, a Royal Engineers officer, instigated proceedings and Baker was arrested and tried at the Croydon Assizes. Um, Rebecca gave her evidence to the court with much propriety. Her respectability being communicated to readers by her natural aversion to an investigation of that painful nature. Baker was convicted of indecent assault, sentenced to a year's imprisonment and fined £500. Queen Victoria was really quite disgusted with him and actually was cashiered. So there were debates about how women should actually avoid risky situations and how she should respond to unwanted attention. Uh, conservative journalist, he was quite influential, um, Eliza Lynn Linton advised in the 1850s, go around dressed like grey moths, don't attract attention to yourself, wear really boring clothes. Uh, and a flurry of letters were sent to the papers in the 1850s and in the 1880s on the subject of street etiquette. You know, um, Many of these describe awkward encounters of be being followed and heckled. Uh, and these missives are kind of, sort of early Victorian precursors to the Me Too movement uh, and the Everyday Sexism website, which, you know, uh, encourage women to talk about their experiences, however small, of these kind of awkward encounters. 
And memoirs of the time also reveal women's feelings about such experiences, feelings which at the time could not or did or they did not know how to express. Elizabeth Robbins, who wrote the first suffragette play and novel, The Convert, published in 1807, uh, she came to London as a young actress in the 1880s and was followed by admirers and accosted at street crossings. She concluded in her memoirs that there was a silence around these kind of subjects, just nobody talking about it. Kitty Marion, who's been a subject of a recent biography by Fern Riddell, uh, she was a musical performer who later became a suffragette and arsonist, and she experienced sexual double standards when she found herself having to fend off assaults from fellow colleagues. Again, she said, you know, I'm going to break the silence in my memoir and I'm going to tell you exactly what happened to me, and I've kept the silence for decades. So it's this whole thing about women speaking out. Um, and dressing like one of Eliza Lynn Linton's grey moths certainly did Lady Violet Greville no good. Although I was quietly dressed, she writes, and I hope looked what I was, a respectable young woman, there was scarcely a day when I, while waiting for an omnibus, was not accosted. She tells us how she was often approached by men in the street that discouraged them, and she found again that silence was the best response. And even well-intended, intentional and respectful men find themselves having to negotiate this tricky etiquette minefield. So, for instance, a middle-class man approached Violet and said, oh, I'm a married man, I've got no designs on you, but you've got a loose thread coming off your dress and you're going to trip over it. So, you know, there was very much the sense that men felt a bit hemmed in by these unwritten rules of etiquette too. Now, Lady Violet Beatrice Greville had, as she put it, two lives, one in the West and one in the East End of London. Uh, she'd had a bit of a fairy tale childhood. She grew up in a Scottish castle overlooking Loch Lomond, spent her youth going to dances and balls and just moved in high society. But there were darker sides to her story too, and she sort of became acquainted with you know, the world of crime. And uh, When she married, she had to reluctantly leave Scotland and she found herself cowering in her husband's Irish estate, fearing the Fenians and jumping, jumping at every sign of the Fenians whose terror, whose terror campaign started the creation of the special branch at Scotland Yard's CID. Um, and she was really fearing them, constantly hiding underneath the windows. Uh, but the sense of dislocation she felt on her move to Ireland from Scotland uh, was offset by her passion for horse riding and socialising. One of her good friends was George, was George Grossmith, who uh, was of diary of a nobody fame, um, and Sir Richard Burton, who mesmerised her with his eyes. Benjamin, figures like Benjamin Disraeli, James McNeil Whistler and Oscar Wilde also came into her orbit. Uh, and while she had a cloistered life, she nevertheless became aware of the lives of those who were blighted by misfortune. Uh, she was persuaded by a family friend, a lawyer involved in the Charles Bravo poisoning case of the 1870s, to attend the murder trial. She wrote, It seemed so horrible, the eager gloated spect uh, gloating spectators, the careless, busy barristers arguing passionately, the poor wretch shivering in his humble clothes, and the great problem of life and death hanging over him. Violet Greville wrote many columns looking at women's predicaments, issues of interest, and she was a well-respected journalist of the day. Although I've got to say, there was a play that she wrote called Nadia, which really completely, yeah, really did not do very well at all. And it's about women who was assaulted by army officers. Uh, the critics didn't like it. She couldn't understand why not. And basically, it ends with her marrying one of them. And it's just, it's all completely problematic, uh, the play itself. Um, but what was really important was that the victim got to be able to talk about her personal experiences. And actually, that's one thing the critics also didn't like. So they wrote, for instance, she relates the fact connected to the stage with the incident with a crudity of detail more befitting the police court than the stage. 
and the Morning Post wrote, to hear the heroine herself tell the story of her dishonour was opposed to true dramatic art and was also to be condemned as an error in taste. If the chief motive were more discreetly set forth, Nadia would make a more effective play. So, taken together with Rebecca Kate Dickinson's experience testifying against Valentine Baker in court, if a woman was to testify, she had to do so demurely and shyly somehow, as if she didn't want to talk about these kind of details and not speak out. Violet Greville was one of those, as the graphic newspaper put it, swells of both sexes who heartily sympathise with the people of the East End who long to do so more intelligently. When she first came to the East End, she made the mistake of travelling in a carriage, complete with a footman and a powdered wig, which caused much amusement down Commercial Road. People saying, oh yeah, he's got flour in his hair. Um, and next time she decided that she's just going to commute by bus. Whilst making her visits, she lived with a clergyman and then worked in Limehouse, representing the Soldiers' Families Association during the Boer War. And she kick-started a campaign in the Telegraph to raise funds to provide breakfast and dinner for the children of Dockers. Violet was not put off by newspaper reports of the Whitechapel murders. Her description of her time in the East End is very much intended as a riposte to those kind of darkest London motifs that we so often encounter of the era. She wrote, The welcome we received in all the houses we visited was a warm one, and though I have walked about alone in the poorest purlieus, even the notorious Ratcliffe Highway and the haunts of the Whitechapel murderer, I never was molested or insulted. People were always kindly the men even more than the women, for they knew we had the interests of their families at heart. She used her contacts in the acting world and set up a mother's home in the East End with help from Dame Madge Kendall, uh, who was called the matron of British drama. The mother's home seems to have been kind of like a forerunner to Sylvia Pankhurst's own The Mother's Arms, which she set up during the First World War, which had free mother and baby clinics offering milk um, and advice. Um, and that was obviously a picture here of that and quote from an exhibition uh, which opened a couple of days ago at the Four Corners Gallery uh, and it was quite there's a lot of really emotional pictures and then I love one particular talk that one of the speakers gave and she said her assistant Sylvia Pankhurst's assistant Nora um, she was she took the photographs of Sylvia Pankhurst and all her activities in the war if Sylvia was <coughs> gold is written up here in quotes for women Nora was silver the silver of silver nitrate which I thought was wonderful so, um, so, yeah, I think also, as Violet Greville was saying, um, I would say to all workers among the poor, she wrote, never patronise, never preach, never find fault, only suggest. And I think her words describe Sylvia's work in the East End and explain why she was such an enduring and likeable figure. She offered advice, she got involved, and people, people liked and admired her for that. And it wasn't this kind of, you know, top-down, on-high kind of approach. To return to the letters written in the press about women, danger in the public space, one of the most famous letters was written on the 5th of January, 1886. Olive Schreiner, author of The Story of an African Farm, took up the issue in a letter to the Daily News entitled Insults to Women by the Police. And she told of walking down the street with a physician friend. Policeman thought that she was a prostitute and she just could not explain to him, no, she, no I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those. And, and then she said she concluded that there are in London some 100,000 women who are unable to defend themselves against the hands of the police. Uh, and we kind of think, when we think of the suffragettes versus police dynamic, which very much characterises the representation of the 1900s and the suffragette campaign, the kind of seeds of that were being set then. And also, what was awkward for them is that the police were, you know, tasked with regulating the movements and behaviour 
of potentially all women and may have been overzealous at points in their duties or made erroneous rests. This is possible. <coughs> um, in the late Victorian era, the Pall Mall Gazette offered women a space in which to tell their stories of these and other encounters. And the Pall Mall Gazette linked these kind of encounters with women's lack of political emancipation and saying, the liberties of men, even the liberty to accost, pursue and insult modest women, infamous proposals are too sacred and must not be interfered with, but the liberties and reputation of women, ah, well, that's another matter, women have no votes. So, bearing Olive Schreiner's experience in mind, uh, P.C. Bowden Endicott landed him in hot water, himself in hot water in 1887, a week after the Jubilee celebrations. Uh, Elizabeth Cass, who was a young dressmaker, was wandering down the West End, um, wanting to see what kind of decorations were still left over from the festivities. It was about after 8.30pm she wanted to go out and buy some gloves, because no respectable woman went out without gloves. And in Regent Street, an area notorious as a red-light district, she was suddenly grabbed by the arm and greeted with the peremptory words, I want you. I have been watching you for some time. And she, then she found herself face to face with a police officer, Endicott. She was helpless in his grasp and he marched her off to the nearest police station. The next day she was charged with soliciting gentlemen. And the magistrate who heard her case was Robert Miles Newton, who, who looks different in every single newspaper that he's represented. Sometimes he's wearing glasses, sometimes a moustache, it's really odd. Um, bit of a shape-shifting kind of character. Um, and he was also very notorious for his surly nature. John Lewis, the founder of the famous Oxford Street department store, complained of the magistrate's insolent manner towards him when he was called upon to appear in court. Lewis concluded that Newton was just unfit as a magistrate. Um, and also Newton gave Miss Cass, and indeed all women, this warning. He said, now, just you take my advice. If you're a respectable girl, as you say you are, don't walk Regent Street and stop gentlemen at 10 o'clock at night. If you do, you will surely be fined or sent to prison after this caution I have given you. So it's obviously a huge outcry. Miss Cass wasn't a prostitute, and PC Endicott and other officers um, had and indeed still were making false arrests of this kind. And even decades later, the police were still trying to justify the fact that they'd arrested her. Oh, she led an immoral life, etc., etc. They were saying in a report in 1908. So it kind of really sort of carried on for quite a while afterwards. And I thought it was interesting because Hallie Rubenhold had evocatively written The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, which is out in February argues that the canonical ripper victims have been wrongly classified. Uh, she argues that there's no evidence to suggest that three of the canonical victims were even prostitutes. And although her book doesn't as yet mention the Cass case, I'm halfway through it at the moment, or of Schreiner's experiences, um, it nonetheless kind of lends Rubenhold's argument much support that they could, people could be misclassified, and indeed possibly still are, um, in terms of the ripperology. Actually, the Whitechapel murders interrupted a nationwide discussion on marriage. Daily Telegraph asking, is marriage a failure? Just checking my time. Um, to which the paper received 20,000 responses. Um, and, you know, Lady Greville herself thought marriage was a failure. She wanted to leave her husband. He wouldn't let her get a divorce. So she couldn't remarry in the end. Um, now, I'm just skipping a few bits because I'm realising what the time is. So, kind of moving on a bit here. So, I'm going to go on to... Um, sharp topic change, Sherlock Holmes, who actually, there's a book I'm reading just now that's been released by the British Library, where he argues that Sherlock Holmes, far from being misogynistic, was actually a friend to women, and he makes a big case about that. Uh, and I'd also say that Holmes was a friend to women by practising the martial art of Baritsu, or Bartitsu as it's properly known. Uh, and 
when Sherlock Holmes supposedly died in 1893 at the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland, there you go. It's actually the hydroelectric companies using most of the water, but even then, still, with just that tiny amount of water, you can really see how scary and cold the place actually is. And this is the statue from Meiringen, so next to that there's lots of etches of all the different Sherlock Holmes stories that, um, that, that uh, the canon uh, features. And actually this martial art that Holmes extricated himself from the situation uh, in 1903 and he used a martial art called um, Bartitsu, it's misspelled as Baritsu in Conan Doyle's story. Um, and this is the guy who invented Baritsu or Bartitsu. Uh, he was born in Bangalore and he went into the antimony smelting business in Millwall at around the time of the Reckon murders, but he was declared bankrupt in 1893. Which is kind of good in a way that the job didn't turn out because um, if it had, he might never have gone to Japan where he learnt uh, jiu-jitsu and, and subsequently brought it over to the UK. Martial arts history in Britain may have changed completely, who knows. Um, so Barton Wright's unique selling point with this martial art was that you could defend yourself uh, using minimal force, none of these crazy anti-grotting weapons, none of these life preservers, anti-grotting collars, knuckle dusters, that kind of thing. You know, you can just use your overcoat, for instance. So this is um, self-defense from the overcoat on the right here. You've probably seen a lot about Barton Wright over the last 10 years. Back in 2002, 2003, when I first started looking at this, hardly anybody had heard of it. And now most people go, oh yeah, Bartik, so you know, that's, that's, uh, that's quite famous. And this is Robin Keith from the Royal Armouries from 2004. They put on a private performance for me and, and sort of um, posed with this. So this is an advert for the Bartitsu Club, which he founded in the West End. It didn't live very long, this club, unfortunately, because um, due to kind of disputes over pay um, and, you know, assistants who were disgruntled about various conditions, it eventually closed. Um, but um, what was interesting was he was promoting his work around that time uh, in Pearson's magazine. And um, this magazine had also serialised H.G. Wells of the War of the Worlds, which in itself is kind of self-defense novel um, in that the earth defends itself against the mighty Martian invade, invaders of microscopic bacteria. So one of the people who um, taught at the Bartitsu school was Pierre Vigny and he was a maitre d'armes and he invented a system of self-defense with the walking cane um, based on his sword fighting techniques and he called it Lacan and he said you know he was a self-confessed learner he went out um, into the roughest of the rough quarters of Paris, Lyon, Marseille, and Naples, and Genoa, and you know, pitched himself against you know these kind of people, these hooligans, these bell-bottomed, um, you know, um, heavy he heavy-belted hooligans. So, whoops. Yeah. So the club itself has kind of slipped into obscurity. Um, it's left under security for a while, and unfortunately, some of the treatment methods you use, various electrical massages, asbestos, you know, to cure a sore throat, kind of didn't really go in too well. And so, there were some really expensive lawsuits. You can see here some of the treatments offered at the Bartitsu Club. Um, but Tony Wolf, uh, who runs the Bartitsu.org website, I've known him for a number of years, he's been working hard over about two decades or so to really. Um, let people know who Barton Wright was and also to link Barton Wright with um, women's self-defense and the emergence of jiu-jitsu for women. Uh, and one of the pupils of Edward William Barton Wright was um, William Garrett, whose wife Edith Garrett uh, opened up her own 
dojos, her own schools, in Islington and in the West End. Uh, and um, she would also, you know, um, sort of train up the suffragettes for martial arts too. Uh, and actually this is, in fact, oh, don't want to forget, this thing here, how to counter a garroting. So yeah, you do the funky chip and you kind of lift your arms up and kind of pop down like that. <laughs> so I'm kind of like racing through this information there. So this is the story of the unveiling of the people's plan to Edith Garrett. So this poor guy here, this, he, this is the owner of the house, standing about nursing a cup of coffee as we're all staring up at his house with Edith Garrett. <laughs> and these are the um, female descendants. And what was really nice I found while researching for this was that Edith Garrett actually put on a play in the East End demonstrating jiu-jitsu at the Queen's Theatre in Poplar. Uh, and it was a play by Cecil Armstrong, What Every Woman Ought to Know. Uh, and according to the Daily Mirror, it was performed in the East End with great success in 1911, telling the story of Costa Liz, who overpowers her husband Bill, telling him, when you're drunk, I'll always be a match for you. And he responds, then I'll never get drunk again. And then she proceeds to get him to do all the household chores. Oh. <laughs> So, um, a pictorial version, just take him out of the way, he's a little bit, he's a little bit hot, <laughs> sorry. Um, a pictorial version of the play also appeared in 1911 in Health and magazine, the oldest still running martial arts, well, physical culture magazine, and here it is, here's a vintage copy, so I brought one along, so uh, if anyone wants to have a look at that afterwards. And um, there are some pictures there of um, some ladies practicing jiu-jitsu, which I haven't actually seen before on the internet. Um, although people focus on Edith Garrett's feminist credentials, she was also a businesswoman and she was trying to promote her product both to um, the suffragettes um, and also to the general public as well. Um, and, but I think one of the things that Edith really helped in doing was she gave, she offered women self-assurance in walking down the street, for instance, you know, posture, confidence. So kind of no more of those Eliza Linton's grey moths than... She used the school as a shelter for suffragettes engaged in stone throwing. So when the police arrived, you know, she'd pretend that all the women were engaged in the jiu-jitsu lesson and weren't doing anything suspect. Um, and her activities in the Women's Social and Political Union and the more democratically run Women's Freedom League were stepped up in 1913, passing of, of the Prisoner's Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act, Cat and Mouse Act. Um, and what she was trying to do was um, she trained up the bodyguard who would protect key leaders from being re-arrested and taken back into prison and then you know they get really weak in prison and they'd be released again and re-arrested and they would be trying to protect key leaders such as Mrs Pankhurst from being arrested and very few people know this but the bodyguard um, trained by Mrs Garrett uh, consisted of two teams A and B so you had the slightly um, older members were in group B and the younger members in group A and if anybody in group A wasn't determined enough or prepared to drop everything at moment's notice, they were committed enough that they'd get shunted through to B. So uh, they all had to kind of take a pledge as well. This is recent information that's come to light to me by, by a source, so I was very, very excited about that. Uh, they brandished engine clubs, which kind of sounds a bit aggressive, but if you consider them to be a kind of equalising force against the police function, then it's kind of more understandable. Uh, and literally, you know, these bodyguards with their engine clubs would be expected to you know, follow that car at a moment's notice, jump you know, through skylights onto omnibuses, flip across alleyways to avoid the detectives, as they call them, the techs, um, otherwise known as the shadows. Some of the tactics employed to fool the authorities were decoys wearing Mrs. Pankhurst's wigs or costumes. 
Um, and sometimes in the West End would be the scene of these wonderful battles where Mrs. P would be sort of kind of flown in, in a sense, give a talk, you know, secretly flown out again before the police could even get her. Most of the time, the bodyguard was quite successful. So I'm going to now go on to Sylvia Pankhurst a little bit, um, because she was one of the most famous um, hunger, thirst and sleep strikers. And in fact, at one point when she was released from jail, her own appearance astonished her. She described herself as looking at her eyes were like cups of blood against a pale face. Uh, she looked really rough after, you know, having put her body through all of this. Um, Sylvia, an American, um, Celia Emerson, set up the East End headquarters at an old baker shop in Bow Road, a later Roman road, and they were supported by George Lansbury. Um, and uh, the WSPU eventually said to them, no, you've got to form a separate organisation because, you know, we have our own ways. We believe in you know, the middle class women, the upper class women, they have the time and resources to campaign for the vote. You know, and Sylvia said, no, I disagree with that. I also want to campaign for votes for men, because many men couldn't vote at the time either. So um, she formed the um, suffragette, the East London Federation of the Suffragettes. And it's actually a lovely little um, piece in the Four Corners exhibition, which opened a couple of days ago, a little letter from Mrs. P to her daughter, Mrs. Pankhurst, saying, Sylvia, you're really difficult. You know, this puts me in an awful situation. You've got to change the name. You can't have suffragettes in your title. If anyone's entitled to suffragettes in the title, we, the WSPU, Women's Social and Political Union, are entitled and not you. So it's really interesting what they've put in the Four Corners exhibition there. So, but she retained the name, and she was helped as Elliot and also Nora Smythe, who we saw... Actually, this is a little picture from the bodyguard. I'll leave that up for a second. Um, who drilled Sylvia Pankhurst's People's Army of men and women and also offered um, courses in self-defence. So before I finish the talk, we'll look very quickly. Uh, we've got time to look at two fights. Suffragette fights, cool. <laughs> so um, two minutes um, to look at these. And so one of the suffragette versus police fight occurred on the 14th of October, 1913. Uh, 19, yeah, the 13th of October. Um, on the 14th of October, George Lansbury wrote a furious letter to Home Secretary Reginald McKenna. He informed him that an orderly public meeting the day before that he'd organised at Bow Bath, Roman Road, in the East End had been broken up by the police. Uninvited, and they were swinging their truncheons. What he didn't tell McKenna was that he'd offered sanctuary to Sylvia. Um, when she emerged on the stage, having been sort of secreted in, in from, from, um, from his house, Sylvia saw the police hit out with their truncheons. Celia Emerson was hit on the head and another lady was struck in the arm by a truncheon. The impact broke her arm. Yet the text from the police report suggests that Celia was tempting the police to attack. She writes, as she said, how are we to stop all this? The only thing you can do is provide this, which is a life preserver or what's called a Saturday night. You can bring uh, a piece of rope like this for a few pence and, you're and if you're inclined, you can melt a little lead in the inside of the knot make it more powerful still. You know, a policeman's helmet brings a good price in current market. If you do not dare to break their heads, you can knock off their helmets. You want to be strong? There's no better object to practice your strength upon than some of McKenna's pups, i.e. the police officers, that stand out in the, in the entrance there. The event remained fresh in the mind of Cecil Bishop of the Special Branch. Now, it's been said that the Special Branch were unable to find any East End residents who would be willing to put up their homes for the police to conduct surveillance. Bishop indeed writes, writes that the vigour of the suffrage movement there in the East End made the East End no place for anyone who was courageous enough to suggest that women should not have the vote. Bishop was one of those <coughs> officers who stormed the platform on which Sylvia was standing. 
His orders were to break up the meeting, and he writes, We managed to break the meeting up, all right, and the suffragettes saw to it that everyone, everything else was broken up too. His younger colleague, a new police recruit, was promptly um, knocked on the head by a woman wielding a chair who turned out to be his aghast fiance. The police... <laughs> sounds <like> chaos. <laughs> the police report stated that no serious injuries were suffered by anyone at the baths, and only a few officers were scratched, but this does not obviously take account of Zeely's head injury or Mrs Ives' broken arm. What's also not mentioned in the report was that Bishop succeeded in taking one of the ringleaders outside, but she bit him, which is also not mentioned in the report, so he dumped it in a barrel of rainwater. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, it's rather interesting. <laughs> Heavily defended, Sylvia got away, but was arrested the next evening in Poplar Town Hall and went on a nine-day intensive hunger and thirst strike. But what's interesting, although Bishop's actions were kind of by no means measured, it sort of shows that you can't simply say that all the actions in the suffragettes were right and all the actions in the police were wrong. There's this kind of moral amb ambiguity in, in the sources when you compare them side by side. And the second incident I want to look at is only days after Mrs. Pennington <coughs> had been arrested outside the gates of Buckingham Palace by Chief Inspector Francis Henry Rolfe on the 21st of May 1914, there's that famous picture of her being lifted off the ground by the inspector, um, a contingent mustered at Canning Town and Poplar, banners flying and a cartload of children following them. They then arrived at 400 Old Ford Road, the new premises of the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, named the Women's Hall. When Sylvia emerged from that overcast day 1914 to prevent her from being re-arrested under the Cat and Mouse Act, 20 men and women changed themselves to her. This is William Young of the People's Army. Um, when, her, uh, when they reached the Victoria Park, the police separated them off from the others and herded them into the boating enclosure where they tried to break the chains. Some of the detectives came dressed as costermongers, but the East End women said, you can smell them a mile away, these are, not, these are police officers. Until the chains could be destroyed, women were beaten by these undesirables, as they called them, these heartless machines of the government, wrote the Women's Dreadnought, the publication uh, headed by Zelie Emerson. Then Sylvia was re-arrested, but as one of these officers confides in his memoirs, and this isn't well known, written 50 years later, while she was being put into the car, her supporters struck left and right at us, the poles from their banners, and I regret to say that Sylvia herself seemed somewhat berserk, and, until she was disarmed, tried to stab at our men's arms with a dangerous-looking hat pin. One of these. <coughs> this is actually original one from 1909, designed by Charles Horner, a very popular model. And there's this whole kind of political sort of debate about whether suffragettes were actually allowed to wear hat pins, you know, um, on trial. And in fact, many of them in Holloway Chapel weren't allowed to wear hat pins to affix their huge hats on their heads, so they had to use toothbrushes. So while I believe the officer's account, what it shows is that the determination, Sylvia, of a woman at the very, very edge of her physical limit to protect herself and defend the cause for which she was fighting, personally he, and I'm on the last page here, and numerous other suffrage officers were deeply sympathetic to the campaign for the women's suffrage. They just find themselves on the wrong side of the law at that point. For them, the militant suffragettes were a security nightmare, a manufactured crime panic. And while the ticket of leave man out and licensed was the bogeyman of the 1850s, the suffragette out and licensed under the Cat and Mice Act was the new monster, capable of anything. As Cecil Bishop says, we suspected everything in a skirt. But the terror campaign the suffragettes created was in itself a response, this is the change gang here, um, to the crimes resulting from the unequal conditions under, women, under which women of all classes lived, where, where when marriage to walking down the street became a case of running the gauntlet. 
Sylvia looked on in horror as her mother and Christabel turned their efforts to supporting the war as what they believed as the ultimate means to secure votes for women in Britain after its conclusion. While they worked on anti-German propaganda, Sylvia concentrated on helping East End men and women who were affected by the fighting. And the recent Women's Hall exhibition at the Tower Hamlets Library mirrored some of the East London Federation suffragettes' activities during the war. There was a cost price restaurant, for instance, and there were some, and also some lovely photographs of the toys made at the factory that Sylvia opens to help both the mothers. These also are at the current Four Corners exhibition. The mothers who were out of work to, and also provided joy to the children. So as a departure from all these images of death, violence, execution, murder and whatnot, I'd like to finish with a quote from the Four Corners exhibition and these toys here. This support for mothers and children was not just a form of welfare, but also a political act which emphasised self-organised alternative values of nature and care in the face of violence of war. And that was Emmeline Godfrey at the 2018 East End Conference. We'd like to thank Emmeline Godfrey, Mark Ripper, Adam Wood and Andrew Firth for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>